Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the fake loans edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. There's been a bunch of news this week. I'm Felix Hammond of Fusion. I'm here to talk about this news with Anna Shemansky and Jordan Wiseman of Slate. Hello, everyone. And the minute I said fake loans, I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to talk about Paul Manafort, aren't we? And and (laughs) all of these weird loans that the New York Times dug up, $17 million of debt he he apparently had to various... Russian or Ukrainian entities. We're not going to talk about that because we try and keep this a politics-free zone. We are not. I apologize to all of my Twitter followers. We are not going to talk about Anthony Scaramucci. (laughs) I thought about trying. So I literally was going to do my number for the numbers. I was going to be five at one point. I was like, that's how many letters are in the fucking mooch. <laughs> then was, but then I realized that Andy Scaramucci looks like he might be the new White House communications director and famously once said of me that everybody hates him, even his wife. <laughs> He's really, really good at communicating. Yes, clearly. <laughs> He's really good at that. Everybody fa- hates Felix Salmon, even his wife. That was one of the legendary mooch quotes, which for, for obvious reasons I haven't really forgotten. Um, <laughs> we're not going to talk about him. We are not even going to talk about Alpha Bay, which is the new Silk Road and which was which did like a billion dollars worth of illegal trade in Almost Bitcoin. talked about it. <laughs> almost talked about we it. Almost, but... We almost talked about it, and then we we just decided that, no, what we really want to do is tr- talk about charitable lead annuity funds instead. <laughs> we do. It's yes. going to be awesome. <laughs> okay. It really will. It's like how last week we were like, hey, we really want to talk about Warren Buffett's utility deal because it's really fascinating. And Anna lit up like we've never seen before. <laughs> so so I is... have, I, I do have a new blog. This is, I have a little announcement to make. It's called cause and effect you can find it at cause and effect.fm which is maybe a hint to its final form but right now it lives on the web and i am going to be writing about charitable lead annuity trusts and i write about various philanthro stuff on there so i feel like this is my wheelhouse now i get to philanthro geek out for a segment excellent awesome. it's going to be it's going to be fun it's going to be all about how hedge fund managers um try and evade taxes um but we have other things to talk about, and most urgently, Jordan. Yes, we want to talk about the 
student loan market or what what is going on there was a crazy new york times story about student loans yeah so so you remember how you know right after the financial crisis we and we had all those foreclosures where the banks actually didn't have any paperwork and they were just foreclosing on people anyway and suing them trying and, to take and, away their and do you remember i don't know i mean very long-term listeners to slate money might remember that very early on in the show we had jake halpern on yes and he was talking about like what do you do if you're being chased by debt collectors and the answer is make them take you to court and then ask them to prove that they have title to the loan because they never do. Absolutely. So those two stories are sort of combined now with student loans. The New York Times had this piece about how this uh, company called National Collegiate Student Loans Trusts was essentially, which has billions of dollars in, in private student loans. We're not talking about government-backed debt here. We're talking about private student loans that would have been issued by banks, Sally May, back in the day. You still see some sort of a private student loan market, even though it's not that huge in the scheme of things. And so those loans were securitized, as all debt eventually gets securitized, and it ended up in the hands of this group. And a lot of that... that and the name of the group is? National Collegiate Student Loan Trusts. There you go. <laughs> so, okay. Yes, we all remember that name. And so they ended up with law's debt, and because it's private student loans, and a lot of them were made to people who never should have taken them out in the first place, a lot of it ended up in default. And so now they have been suing people to try and get back or to try and collect that debt. Or more to the point, they have passed it on to various debt collectors. collectors. And then the debt debt collectors take the people to court. And guess what? Some of these people listen to Slate Money. Yeah. Or also, you know, or have good lawyers. Yes, have good lawyers or, you know, get some nonprofit lawyer to show up and help take the case to court. And what are they discovering? Oh, there are billions of dollars of these loans with no chain of title that no one has. They cannot prove that they actually own these things. It's a complete just replay of what we saw with securitized mortgages. And someone took a sort of random sample of 400 of these loans and said, I'm just going to look at 400 of these loans and see how many of them we actually have title to. And the, uh, and the number of those, that group of 400, now we don't know that it's completely representative, but it's indicative. Yes. What, how many of those loans did they actually have title to, Anna? Zero. <laughs> Like, how is that even possible? Man, this is where you blockchain for. Like, <laughs> this is this is actually actually you know what? this is an example. This actually is, a, is an instance. This for, is one where it's like could. that would because yeah, apparently they, they can't they, keep track of the goddamn I, paperwork. They could have. They should have just put these loans on the blockchain had the blockchain existed. But the um, but yeah. So so it's called. I, I believe the 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 name of the entity which you probably see if you're the borrower is American Education Services. Yeah, and. The fact is that if you're writing monthly checks to American Education Services, um, and we can get into this a little bit, but like, not that this is financial advice or anything, but if you just stopped writing those checks (laughs) and waited for them to take you to court, you could probably just say, show me the title, and they probably couldn't. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, this is just so fascinating because I feel like part of the sloppiness that, or part of the sloppiness here is actually, 
um, student lenders or the people who took or who bought these securitized loans, just assuming that government regulation was going to make it really easy to collect all this. Because um, back in the early 2000s, uh, as part of the bankruptcy bill that President Bush signed, uh, it made it impossible, essentially, or nearly impossible to discharge student loans. And so very rarely do people try to get them discharged. Very rarely do people take this stuff to court. For the most part, if they end up defaulted and in trouble, they just kind of let it lie. They don't challenge it. It's just, you know, they just sort of assume, well, I'm screwed. And so I'm assuming there was some degree of overconfidence here where they were just like, eh, we'll be able to collect this debt no matter what. Who cares what's in the filing cabinet? And, yeah. and instead, it's, you know, they seem to have screwed the pooch. <laughs> Definitely. And, and part of the reason that you, when you often had other assets that were backed by these type of payments, they tended to be pretty safe assets because the laws related to discharging student loan debt are so onerous that it's going to make the ultimate default rates lower. Yeah. So the interesting twist to this case is that the equity owner of the loans, like, yes. the, like if the loans um, all get paid back and the people who bought the securitized debt get their interest payments and there's a bit of money left over, then that money goes to this guy who's a venture cap, a private equity guy who gets what's left over at the end of it all. And this guy, if you are a slate money nerd and you understand capital stacks, which you probably do at this point, like in the the intuition is that this guy, because he's the equity equity holder, he's like the most junior person, owns it, basically. He's like the owner of it and he gets to control it and he gets to say what happens. He doesn't want these cases being brought to court. And he's trying he's basically saying, This is insane. I own this debt and I can't, and I'm, he's in his own court fight trying to stop them from bringing these cases to court. And then somehow they're still bringing these cases to court. Yeah, I think he's actually fighting with other equity owners. And then the this particular trust is not speaking with him. So, yeah, it's a mess. But, you know, when the good guy in this case is the private equity guy, that the, the other people are pretty darn bad. And yeah, and, we, and this is another literal sort of running theme of Slate Money is that um, – trustees and fiscal agents and all of those things where people, you know, give themselves jobs to act on behalf of bondholders and whatnot. They are, I believe the technical term is OTOs. They just, they do as little as possible and they are as unhelpful as possible as they can be because like they, it's just a horrible thing. Never become one of those. <laughs> um, but Anna, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, if you had a, bunch of student loan debt um, payable to American Education Services. Let's say you had, I don't know, $20,000 in AES debt, which you owed them and you were paying back at however many hundreds of dollars a month. Would you just default on that right now? Probably not. <laughs> but you can ask them to prove that they own the title, right? Like, yeah, and they'll, would... and they'll just ignore you. Interesting. Right. But I would say... In this specific instance, again, this is not advice to anyone. In this specific instance, you could argue that it might make sense to either just stop paying or to actually get a lawyer to figure out what your rights are, which I think probably is the better option. But this is a very specific example of student loan debt that is yeah. not really applicable, I would say, beyond this specific yeah. example. Well, so I so I got into this on, on Twitter a little bit. I'm like, if I had AES debt specifically, given that it's pretty obvious they can't prove title to any of it, you know, it would make sense. Now, I would probably suffer a hit to my 
credit rating, but that hit to my credit rating is probably worth, you know, costs cost me less than like $10,000 or $20,000, however much I'd, I'd save. And so ultimately, I'll take that if I get to keep my $20,000. And some people were just coming back and making the standard argument of, but you have like a moral slash ethical responsibility to make this debt, debt repayment, uh, to which I just said, well, what would Donald Trump do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, although should that be our moral? <laughs> <laughs> I I think, you know, long time listeners show may remember me haranguing Ellie Mistel a while back about his law school debt. But there it was a weird that was a weird discussion. But in general, I, I'm not. I don't have many compunctions about a strategic default on private debts. Um, that's, you know, they're they're underwriting the loan. They're supposed to be uh, assessing you as a risk. And if you're more of a risk than they thought, whoops, they did a bad job underwriting. Um, I will say that I think that, again, the idea of just uh, just defaulting um, because you think they probably don't have title, that is that is a risk. You know, just because that sample of 400 had no title, <laughs> right. like there is a chance that they that was a, you know, a skewed sample. Let's put it that way. There's an yeah. off chance. And also, like... <laughs> Society is based on contracts. <laughs> Upholding contracts is kind of important. And if lots and lots of people default on debts, it does make rates higher for everyone. Yeah, but it's... private student debt is just... Yeah, I mean, look, uh, private, uh, look, I will totally give you that. Yes, private student debt is a specifically awful part of the market. Yes. And the fact that, I mean, it, I think part of the reason I'm relishing this is because the government went to such lengths to make it impossible for people to get rid of these private loans, which they never should have passed that law. It was such a reprehensible piece of legislation that just there was no public policy justification for it. They said, okay, lenders, you've got free reign here. You've got all the same rights as the federal government, which offers all these discounted loans to people, to poor people who would never get private loans for the most part. And then these lenders, or I guess this trust just managed to totally mess it up. It's like you just, it's like you were playing t-ball and you whiffed. Like yes. that is what they've done here. And so I think that's part of why I'm just like, yeah, if, if you think- I, I have, I have get sim- it, sympathy with this because I have whiffed. My <laughs> <laughs> very bad hand-eye coordination. What can I say? Um, but yeah, I would say like yeah, not a lot of tears are being shed for what's the name of this entity again? <laughs> You're just being mean at this point. <laughs> National College Loans something whatever the fuck it is. Like the guy, like the Keystone Cops of debt here. Yes. Like that is pretty much what we're dealing with. Okay. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So when I ask my Twitter followers who I'm getting into fights with on Twitter, what would Donald Trump do, Anna? What would Donald Trump do (laughs) if... Entirely hypothetically, 
He went along to Deutsche Bank's commercial real estate arm and said, hey, lend me hundreds of millions of dollars so that I can build a big tower in Chicago. And Deutsche Bank turned around to him and said, fuck off. What would he do? He would probably sue them, which is... So, incidentally, uh, he did actually originally take out a loan, Donald Trump, from Deutsche Bank's commercial real estate arm. And then when he couldn't pay it back in 2008, he couldn't make one of the payments. He then said that he couldn't make the payment because of the financial crisis. Deutsche Bank was partially responsible for the financial crisis, and he sued them for $3 billion. Which is the greatest lawsuit. I've, I I had known that this lawsuit happened. I did not know that was the actual complaint. I did yes, not know yes. literally he sued them for the financial crisis. Yeah. That Which, only affected him. That is such a, just like, I mean, this is why people actually had affection for Donald Trump before he became into became a racist demagogue. It was just like the Ridiculous brass. But anyway. Yeah. So ultimately, obviously, he did not win this case, but the um, loan is extended and he was able to pay off that debt by then going to Deutsche Bank's private wealth management division, getting a loan from them and using that to pay off Deutsche Bank's commercial real estate. So this is this is this is memorably described in the article as basically you owe money to your dad and so you pay it off by borrowing money from your mom yes exactly and it all comes or from, your dad wearing a different hat and it's it's basically yeah it's one big deutsche bank balance sheet and but the people in the commercial real estate arm are happy because they got their loan mm-hmm. repaid and the people in the private wealth management arm because that's where he's getting the money from are happy presumably because this is part of a broader relationship that he has with them and they get to look after his billions or something. Exactly. So part of the reason you would think, okay, why is the wealth management arm more likely to deal with them? Because this is normally not what you think of when you think of private banking and wealth management, like financing like hundreds of billions of dollars in a hotel. That's not normally what you think of. And this is uncommon, but not it does happen. And In this instance, part of the reason it happens is because often in private wealth management, you have securities-based lending. So you have to keep a certain amount of assets at the bank that then you are lent against. I don't know if that's the case with Donald Trump, but that is- I don't think he has that much in securities. I have I have no idea, he has, but he has some. I remember, yeah, but like, like in his, the in whole his point was, yeah. But in terms of assets, time, you need to, yeah. in terms of the assets that he would have to have with Deutsche Bank that then potentially they would lend against. But the the argument is that by going to the wealth management arm, he's now going to do much more of his banking, hold more of his of his assets at Deutsche Bank. He has other rich friends that he will then get to come to Deutsche Bank. There are all of these kind of contingent benefits that they would get that the commercial real estate arm wouldn't and. And and yeah, not just rich friends, but even rich son-in-laws. Yes, yes. I, I was. I have this theory about Donald Trump that he admires people entirely based on their net worth, and the yeah. reason he loves Jared Kushner so much is just because Jared Kushner has more money than he does. Does he at this point? Does Jared Kushner actually have a higher net worth than Trump? It's I really think he probably it's a, does. Depends on how you define Trump's net worth, which yeah, and Jared Kushner's. Yeah, 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 yeah. And who knows? This may all become a very Putin-esque exercise in trying to figure out net worth soon. But we should probably say what the the news hook for the New York Times article was, which is there now regulators are looking at Deutsche Bank at his relationship with Deutsche Bank, partly to figure out yeah. if 
in order his relationship with Russian lenders. Or, well, partly, or, but also the Fed is looking at it because they're just saying, are, is, are is these he, loans like good? Right. <laughs> like, are Which you going to be able to get this money back? Yeah, and, and, and that, and, yeah it's, it's a really salient question because if Donald Trump has a personal private banking relationship with Deutsche Bank and he personally owes hundreds of millions of dollars to Deutsche Bank and he then defaults on any of that debt, which is uh, an entirely possible thing because he defaults on debt all the time, then what does Deutsche Bank do? They have two choices. They can either sue the president of the United States or they can not sue him because he's the president of the United States, either of which is problematic. Right, because Donald Trump likes to say he has no personal debt, but that's not really true because even though a lot of the debt is actually through his companies and they're non-recourse loans, so you would think in theory they can't come after him, they can only go after the collateral. But he has personal guarantees on a lot of these loans. So ultimately, they can. That's actually why he had the original issue with Deutsche Bank, because he had a personal guarantee on that loan. Yeah. And that's not totally unusual in real estate. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's how my grandfather lost all of his money (laughs) on a bad real estate deal back in the day. I can get into a long story about that. But I mean, these things... I mean, the personal guarantee part, that's one of those quirks of real estate is like sometimes that's just how you do it. But in this case, now it's the personal guarantee of the president who also wields the entire Justice Department. Right. And 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 then it raises larger questions about the American government's relationship with Deutsche Bank. And if we have um, had penalties against Deutsche Bank in the past. So if now you have a president of the United States who has Mm -hmm. this tremendous liability with this institution, that raises larger questions. And he's in charge. Ultimately, you know, it's the government is in charge of regulating Deutsche Bank. And so the bank regulators kind of answer to the president. It's all very difficult to disentangle. In this case, the Fed, not so much. The Fed, thankfully, has its own lines of authority that mm-hmm. don't really come directly from the president. So that Although I'll, you know, he did just appoint or say he was going to appoint Randy Qualls to be the guy who true. oversees right. the, yeah. you know, it all like even the Fed is ultimately appointed by the president. Yeah. I, I that's I guess you're right there. It, it is it, it's hairy. It's like it seems like I don't know. To me, this does seem like an example of you owning the bank. Like to me, like you know, he, you know, this is yet yet another example of Donald Trump and his long illustrious career of, you know, taking out loans that suddenly had the bankers beholden to him. Uh, he's done and there's it again. A, there's a good reason why when you look at the list of sanctions that the Americans have imposed on various Russian nationals for being, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. bad people, that that list is has a lot of bankers on it. You know, a lot of the Putin cronies and whatnot, you know, he has a bunch of banks which are kind of indistinguishable from the government. Right. And that's frankly, the, I mean, when you start to look at Russian corporates and Russian banks, anything of size is either going to be state owned or it's going to be very closely aligned with the state. That is just yeah, Russian business. Well, and, and so I guess that's the other element here that it, the Times article was kind of weird about the, the Russian angle going on because they were saying, Deutsche Bank involved in a lot of Russian money lending, laundering. They've they've been fined for money laundering. A lot of Russians do business with it still, but they don't think any of this private lending business had anything to do with the Russians. Well, that, although I'm going to argue, like, yeah. look, all German banks do a lot of business with Russians. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Deutsche Bank is yeah. the biggest German. Of course, bank. so they're going to do more business with Russians. And they also and they were doing some of the most blatant yeah. um, business with Russia. They were doing this scheme which. Basically, if you're a Russian, 
um, with assets in Russia and you want to get those Rus- assets outside Russia, you're not allowed to just transfer them out of Russia. So what you do is you go along to Deutsche Bank and say, um, you know, can I sell you the assets in Russia? And then like at the same time, you're shorting the assets outside Russia. And there's this weird sort of like mirror trade thing mm-hmm. going on where magically you wind up with assets outside Russia. Yeah. And um yeah, Deutsche Bank gets fined quite a lot of money for doing these because they were clearly not economic transactions. They were just ways to get around rules. That Yeah. You know. um, this is what Deutsche Bank is good at. And this is also what Deutsche Bank's private wealth management arm is particularly good at because these people are individuals, right, who are wanting to move money around the world. And wealth management operations, when you're dealing at that level of mm-hmm. individual – that's your job is to try and find ways to move money around the world right. even when you're not meant to. Exactly. Also, be, And wealth management is becoming a bigger and bigger profit center for a lot of banks as yeah. they can't make as much money through trading, as they can't make as much money through all of these other means that they used to because of stricter regulations. This is a, we have, a very we, competitive business. We have talked about Credit Suisse many times on this show. <laughs> and the only the place a company that can lose money in wealth management. But, but that's true. It's, it's like they are betting the farm on wealth management and specifically on wealth management in Asia mm-hmm. on the grounds that they can't work out how to make money anywhere else. Does betting the farm on wealth management or getting really further into or kind of diving deeper into it pretty much guarantee that these banks are just going to be dealing with more unsavory characters that like you're just going to deal with more more of your business is going to be like serving oligarchs essentially and helping them move their money around like if you're international I think the answer is necessarily yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a case to be made that there's a handful of like Silicon Valley billionaires who are relatively clean. But yeah, if you're trying to do wealth management in, you know, Africa, say, you know, or or, or just about anywhere in the world, certainly in, um, you know, Eastern Europe and Russia and places like that, you can't avoid dealing with people who, in an ideal world, you might not necessarily want to be dealing with. Right. Although I would say the vast majority of wealth management people who are dealing with are not those high, high, high net worth individuals. That's going to be a smaller sliver of your business. But how, what percentage of your business, though, comes from those super yeah. high net worth individuals? I mean, I, be, they are so disproportionately wealthy. It seems like they're going to be... And this inequality your increases. Your, your total like wealth management assets could easily be dominated by those individuals. Just I, even one or two of them. I agree, but I'm also wondering... How many of the wealthiest people are actually going to work with these big banks, wealth management divisions? Well, I don't know. Because, do, because they actually don't – the client isn't necessarily going to get all the benefits. The The bank is going to be able to assess a lot of fees. And this is really all about fees. Any wealth management story is fundamentally a story about fees. Now, if you're very, very wealthy and you can put your money in all these different smaller private funds, which also you're paying fees, but – I don't know. I would think the the biggest players might not be as involved in this. Donald Trump is because nobody else will lend to him. Well, so that actually, and, and, well, I mean, I think wealth. Every single major wealth management arm of a big bank, whether it's Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse or anyone else, will tell you that they're more than happy to put your money into small private funds. Like they will. The, you just need um, what you want and what you need is a highly professional operation which you can trust not to run away with your money and to keep tabs on everything and just like a one-stop shop which will look after everything for you because otherwise it's just too much for you yourself to keep up with. And then if you want to invest in small private funds or whatever, they'll be happy to do that for you. But if I'm a billionaire, I don't want to use 
I mean, I you know, I might set up my own family office, but if I don't want to set up my own family office, I want to find a large Swiss bank or Deutsche Bank or someone who I can just say, like, deal with everything. I think this, so just coming back to Trump, this does kind of explain, you know, or I think we're starting to understand his relationship with Deutsche Bank better, which is just mm-hmm. like, why was this the bank that decided to work with him? Simple. It was the bank that was used to dealing with extremely unsavory characters. Well, it and- also has to do with, so in the 90s, when they really started to build their business with Trump, it was because they were trying to yes. build a New York commercial real estate business and trying to expand. And so they would deal with him. And then when you move further on, the reason that they would continue with the wealth management was the same reason. They were really trying to big out, build out their wealth management, so they were more apt to deal with him. This is, this is one of the standard um, stories about German banks, and it's not just Deutsche Bank, but it's mainly Deutsche Bank, um, is that they look jealously at um, various banks in the US and the UK and Switzerland and say, they're making so much money in bond trading, they're making so much money in equity trading, they're making so much money in M&A, they're making so much money in wealth management, we should be in that business. And then they spend gazillions of dollars trying to get into that business, and then it never really works out for them. Right. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, so... We have a news hook now, which is... Uh, it's a good news hook. It's a, it's a fun news hook. Basically, there was this loophole which was closed in 2008. Um, a bunch of hedge fund managers were m- managing their money offshore and a little bit like Apple and Microsoft and all of these other companies which managed to keep money, keep profits offshore and not pay taxes on it. They were basically doing the same thing. They were managing offshore money in the Cayman Islands and keeping that money in the Cayman Islands. And so long as they weren't repatriating it, they weren't paying any income tax on it. This was a loophole which was closed in 2008. And the government gave them 10 years to just pay that income tax already, which so this is all income tax, which was owed before 2008, but they could just defer paying it indefinitely until now, finally, the, something's coming home to roost. Well, I'm not quite sure. Well, what. yeah, now it's the 10 years. Or, the, right. the 10 the years, years up in 2018. Yeah. And so now they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, they I inter- have to pay this tax bill. They interpreted that as, oh, we have 10 years to figure out how, how not to, to pay, pay this Exactly. Tax. <laughs> it wasn't, we've got 10 years to pay. It's like, okay, we got a decade to figure out a new loophole. Right. And so... The, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a report on this, and it seems like a lot of what they're thinking, they, they don't have a really good loophole. They don't have like a great loophole. It's just going to keep it totally tax. But there's a lot of shenanigans involving charities. And I was- So this is, yeah, so this is this wonderful, there are two wonderful charity shenanigans, um, which they're using. And honestly, like, you know, the ultimate effect of this is that a bunch of charities are going to get a bunch of money. So that's mm-hmm. good. Um, but so the idea is, basically, they're going to think to themselves, I have billions of dollars and i'm going to inevitably wind up giving some large chunk of that money to charity eventually anyway so why don't i 
give a bunch of that money to charity now in this 2018 year where I have a massive tax bill in such a way as to minimize my massive tax bill because all, even though they might like giving money to charity, they really hate paying taxes. Yes. yes. Um, so one of the ways they do this is called the Donor Advised Fund. We'll talk about that. Um, interesting thing. The other way that they're doing it is a crazy crazy thing called a charitable lead annuity trust and that's what i really want to it, geek out it, over. I, so i was reading the description of it in in the wall street journal i was just like this can't be real no. this has to be, this is a scam this okay is, and then we heard that it was a scam that jackie onassis <laughs> was involved in and so um what yeah feel like okay okay so this thing i'm going to explain this thing but before i explain this thing i just want to just very quickly touch on the donor advised funds yes because the one because the one thing they want to do beyond just not paying taxes yeah. is keep the money. Yes. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they can do is set up this thing called a donor-advised fund. And what they do is they create a charity or there's some sort of paper charity which they give their hedge fund holdings to. Um, and then what does the charity do with these holdings? It's them in their fund. It yep. just it doesn't give them away. It just keeps those that money invested in that fund. So if I'm Stevie Cohen, say, and I give a billion dollars to a donor advised fund, then that donor advised fund can just keep that billion dollars in Stevie Cohen's hedge funds, and he still has that money under management. And does he still collect his two and twenty on that? He still collects his two and twenty on that, and. He has zero obligation to give any of that money actually in cash to actual charities. If you set up a foundation, now, like this is the other thing that people do, is they set up a charitable foundation, mm-hmm. and then the charitable foundation will have an endowment, and the endowment can invest its endowment in your funds. And that's you people do that, and that is another way of getting around, you know, these these tax bills. But foundations need to spend 5% of their assets every year on actually mm-hmm. giving money to charity, yeah. whereas donor-advised funds do not. So is there anything – I mean, do what's the downside of a donor-advised uh, – like a donor-advised fund? Uh, like there has to be some reason why people do foundations instead of that, or is it just like some people have moral compunctions and some people don't? The, diff- the well, Foundations are very expensive. Okay. Um, I, like, I have a donor-advised fund. Really? Um, there's um, – donor-advised funds are very – easy and effective ways to give money to charity especially if you like have a windfall you get some kind of an inheritance or something like that or a capital gain um and you're like i want to give this money to charity but i don't know exactly which charities and i don't know exactly when but why don't i just put it all in this donor advice fund and then once it's there it's not yours anymore yeah so it's kind of easier to give it away yeah and you don't need to worry about like oh am i going to do this which tax year am i going to do it in or anything like that it's all been given away already yeah and so um like on a personal level i find donor advice funds kind of fun and awesome things on a public policy level that really bad yeah, has anyone tried to undo this loophole where they just get to keep the damn money like yeah. in their own fund um yeah it's it's like the question of whether you can direct the money to be invested in your own funds is a slightly complex one and i don't want to make it sound that it's very very easy for okay. you to direct to keep it in your own funds but it definitely does happen okay um, and you still have to pay some taxes on it right when you are first setting all this up or no 
Really? Well, it's, you're giving it away to charity, and that's that's like the American way is that if you're giving money to charity, you get to always give pre-tax money to charity. Now, you know, again, up to a certain limit. Warren Buffett is giving billions of dollars to charity every year, and he gets no tax deduction for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these things are really done within the sort of limits of the amount that you can deduct. And yeah. it, as long as it's within those limits, then people go ahead and do it. Um, on the, As I say, on the public policy level, I really don't love this idea that there's billions and billions of dollars in these huge donor-advised funds which are just sitting there. It turns out, weirdly, that if you don't put a minimum yeah. on it, if you don't have that 5% minimum, mm-hmm. then people actually in practice, tend to give more than 5%. They oh, tend to give like, like between 10 and 20% each year. Whereas if you have a minimum of 5% for foundations, that then has this weird anchoring yeah, effect and sense. all foundations just end up just giving 5%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but, but the other difference is that foundations are often set up with the explicit intent of existing in perpetuity, right. whereas donor-advised funds, I think people mentally are saying, I want to spend this within the next five or 10 years. Yeah. Right. Because also, the amount of money you pay out is going to affect the amount of returns you need to make. Which brings me on to the charitable lead annuity trusts, which are this crazy scam. And <laughs> that Jackie probably Hill. didn't seem so scammy back in the day when interest rates were quite high, but are now... Okay, so the number is yeah. 1.8%. Okay. The official discount rate that the IRS uses um, in terms of if you promise to give um, an income stream to charity, yeah, the way they value that income stream is by discounting it at 1.8%, okay. which is a very low yes. um, interest rate. So basically what that means is if I use this thing called the Charitable Lead Annuity Trust, I can promise to give $75,000 a year to charity from for, for 15 years, right? Yeah. And then I can get a $1 million tax deduction right now. Okay. It's the net present value. It's the, yeah. So basically the present value of $75,000 a year discounted at 1.8% for 15 years yeah. is $1 right. million. Yes. So... This is how it works, is that you give a million dollars to charity. Yeah. You then immediately borrow that million dollars back from the charity. The charity's like, wait, yeah. You know, they they thought they had a million dollars, but they don't. Now they've got a note from you, basically, instead. You say, okay, I will will pay this money back to you at a rate of $75,000 a year for 15 years. But in the meantime, I get to put that million dollars in my hedge fund. And if I if that million dollars at the end of 15 years is worth $10 million, then all of the extra $9 million that I don't pay to the charity yeah. is mine tax-free. Yes. And if I'm not making more than 1.8% in my hedge fund, I am a really lousy yeah. fund manager. Yeah. And I see why this wouldn't have been as big a deal when interest rates were higher because they would have been higher right. than the discount rate. And so that would have made it less valuable. Without getting too deep into it, that would have made it a less valuable move for the person trying to run this scam. But now that interest rates are perpetually, you know, hugging zero. Or- right. And then and then the other part of the scam is that these things are non-recourse. Yeah. So if I give the 
charity a million dollars, borrow back that million dollars and say, now I'm going to repay at $75,000 a year and I'm just going to invest that million dollars in my ultra, ultra high risk hedge fund. And then my ultra, ultra high risk hedge fund goes to zero. The charity is just shit out of luck. I don't owe that charity any money anymore. So when you're bar- when you're giving the money to a charity and then borrowing it back, this is is it typically a charity that they themselves have set up and so that they no can... no it's it's this thing called a charitable lead oh, annuity okay, trust the trust that you create okay yeah. yeah so it is the trust you're giving to and then borrowing it back yeah. from yeah. and so that is and you can kind of then direct all of that and make sure you're going to get your money back. It's it's um, it's for the, as far as the charity is concerned, it's all downside and no upside. <laughs> because they are getting, you know, effectively, they're lending out money to a billionaire at 1.8%. And they have a default risk because he could just invest it all in high-risk securities, which go to zero. Yeah. And so they could wind up getting nothing, but they never get more than that 1.8%. So is this something that's gotten more popular in recent years for tax avoidance schemes? Because right, I'm of, thinking, like, why wouldn't every yeah, very, very wealthy person do this? Yeah, it, it seems like the kind of thing where no one would have noticed it for a while because it was this fusty old thing that mm-hmm. the Kennedys were into and then they realized oh now it works differently or is am i reading that situation wrong? basically these these things become increasingly popular as the official irs discount rate comes down yeah so you know last year it was like for 2016 it was below two percent all year and at some points it was below even 1.5 percent and the lower that discount rate goes the more the hedge fund managers and even just normal investors start getting dollar signs in their eyes and going, this is an amazing opportunity for me to make millions and millions of dollars of untaxed income because mm-hmm. everything they get from that investment over and above that 1.8% is tax-free income. It's obscene. So that was me geeking out about charitable lead annuity trust. I hope that wasn't too geeky it's for you. Fascinating no, it's, and yes, horrifying. Yes. Um, um, but yeah, I think I think it is time for the numbers round. All right. You want me to go first? Sure. sure. So my my number is 50 or thereabouts, which is apparently the number of companies that have been using the enterprise version of Google Glass. You probably remember Google Glass. Google Glass 2.0. Yeah. So the, the greatest consumer, the, the most spectacular consumer tech failure of the last several few years, um, which... Well, that maybe. was the Fire Phone. I was just going to say. Oh, that's <laughs> just maybe, to maybe the Fire Phone. Okay. Or, Zoom? Or I guess there was the Juicero also. <laughs> okay. But like the Google Google Glass was like a high, a, like just the, the scale of it and yep. just the, the degree to which it was mocked. Um, the fact that it was Google. I mean, they really kind of just blew it on the rollout the first time around. And then they kind of retrenched and they're like, what can we actually do with this? And what they discovered was that a lot of industrial companies liked the product because they said it's great our workers can do their jobs and they don't have to like hold papers in their hands they can have their hands free to weld or do whatever or take control of machines and they can just get info input through this glass and no one gives a damn what they look like on a factory floor they're already wearing goofy goggles and so this seems to be what glasses future is is that you know they've got yeah again factory workers doctors are wearing it so they can just call up you know medical files while they're sitting there talking to a patient they don't have to keep turning around back and forth so it seems like this great failure may actually be having a second life as a as an enterprise solution. Yes. Oh God, I can't believe we had the term enterprise solution. <laughs> I said this. it in my most. You did. I you said did. it in an ironic uh, voice. Yeah, I, even ironically, like it's like fingernails down a blackboard. Did enterprise you, solution. Did you enterprise see a great Financial Times article about corporate speak? No. I would Lucy highly, Calloway's yes, final. Really wonderful. Column. Lucy Calloway is the queen of making fun of corporate speak. 
Um, she is one of the great financial journalists of our age. And she has officially now left the Financial Times to become a school teacher, which is not an obvious career move, but it is one that she is doing. And so her last column for the FT was the kind of greatest hits of corporate speak. And yeah, you should read that column and also the response to it by the guy from Starbucks. Um, Anna. So my number is 17. And those are the number of words in the um, quarterly earnings presentation that the founder oh, Sports of Sports Direct. Direct. Yes. Oh, my God. I love this guy. <laughs> he basically came in and was like, this was his entire presentation. It's clear we've smashed it out of the park with our Selfridges of Sport concept. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, th- so this is an English company, which is... Um, it's it's kind of like the models of England. Okay. And <laughs> and what you do is it's just it's just like a high street sportswear um chain which has always been a bit shabby and what they've decided in the midst of this crazy real estate boom in England is they're going to reinvent themselves as something much more upmarket and real estate heavy and they're going to start buying a bunch of like extremely prime real estate from his like and he put his like daughter's boyfriend yes. in charge of it. Oh no! And the, and that they're, they're going to oh, no. go high end. And yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Yes. And this was his in, his entire presentation to investors. Although there was a Q and A. Of course, there's a Q and A. Yeah, but I I just very much appreciate that. And also, like if you've ever had to listen to corporate earnings presentations, <laughs> they go on so long. So there's a part of me that was like, I kind of respect that. Can you read it one more time? I just want to. <laughs> <laughs> I can. It's clear we've smashed it out of the park with our Selfridges of Sport concept. <laughs> so good. Yeah, which is kind of, I want to say that's a baseball metaphor, and they don't they play, play baseball, baseball in the UK. No. Cricket? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, do people smash it out of the park in cricket? Is that a thing? Maybe, perhaps. Anyway, um, my number is 43,438.455. Um, you know, because... It's a Wait, lot of decimal places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. eight significant figures right That's a there. very specific number. Um, that is a number of ether. It okay. is not a number of dollars. The, if the, the value of that ether in dollar, dollars is about $7 million. Um, and that is the amount of ether that was stolen in one of the most, probably the, simple, the simplest sort of Bitcoin hack story I've ever come across in my life is awesome. There's this company called Coindash, which like every other company out there right now is doing an ICO. We've talked about these ICOs in the past. Um, It was like, please give us a whole bunch of Ether and we'll give you a bunch of worthless tokens in exchange, but maybe those tokens you can speculate on and might go up in value. And everyone and their mother said, oh, great, I'm going to go in and I'm going to get in on this Coindash ICO. So what they did is they went along the Coindash website and the Coindash website said, if you want to buy our tokens you need to send your ether to this particular address and then once we've got the ether we'll give you our we'll give you the tokens so this is the simplest hack in the world a bunch of hackers just hacked the coin dash website and they changed the address so that instead of so that they just changed a couple of digits in the address so that instead of people sending their money to coin dash they were sending their money to the hackers <laughs> and they wound up and they wound up sending 43,438.455 Ether 
to these hackers and got nothing in return. Friends don't let friends invest in ICOs. Yes. <laughs> just, just don't. Just don't. We have do one it. piece of investment advice for you. I know we're gonna get so many angry tweets yes, from are. people. Yes, like we are. every time we talk about ICOs or really cryptos, upset. like we've been... libertarians hate us. <laughs> and yet you guys are still listening, apparently. And please do. We love you. We love you, <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Yes, thank you, listeners. Even even you, Bitcoin faithful out there, for listening to this. And I and if you're screaming in the middle of the street right now saying, no, ICOs are the best, then um, stop screaming because people can hear you. (laughs) Um, And tune in next week where we promise not to talk about Bitcoin. I mean, unless we unless we find... (laughs) Unless we do. (laughs) Unless (laughs) we do. Uh, And then what are you going to (laughs) do? We we had the opportunity to talk about you know the dark web and Bitcoin and stuff this week and we didn't. You see, that's how much we re- we respect you people. Um, you people. You people. <laughs> you people. Uh, anyway, many thanks to you all for listening. Do subscribe. Um, also subscribe to Trumpcast because obviously that's you know if you don't get enough Trump on Slate Money, then you can get all Trump all the time. On Trumpcast, which is Jacob Weisberg and Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie just talking about Trump on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. There's a lot of Trump to go around. That's also brought to you by the good people at Panoply. Um, keep on writing to us. The email is slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. I want to be Jackie Onassis. I want to wear. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.